This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm sure you saw Ottawa yesterday during the Grey Cup with the snow falling and the frigid temperatures. And I hear all the time from people saying that they don't want to have, especially with Super Bowls, it said less about the Grey Cup. Super Bowls, they don't want to have it in bad weather. They don't want to have it outdoors somewhere where it could be bad weather. They did it in New York with a, in Giant Stadium, but they want to make it so that the players get to perform at their peak. They want to have a sterile, perfect environment so the best players in the world can be at their very best. What do you think about that? Do, are you a... Are you someone who looks at what happened in Ottawa yesterday with the snow and the conditions wreaking havoc to some degree and say, I like that? Or do you want to have it in a sanitized environment? I think that's a pant load. I mean, I thought yesterday was very cool. Um, 96 in Hamilton. Yep. It snowed. Um, a lot. A lot. A lot. It was a blizzard. That I day. thought it was great to watch. And um, I, I think anybody that wants everything perfect is, is dream, dreaming in tep- technicolor. I thought it was exciting. I mean, it's the, it's the same for both of them. It's not like one of them were playing on ice and the other guys were playing on, you know, natural turf. I think it's just Canadiana. I mean, to see, Absolutely. To see the snow falling in Ottawa, to see Shania Twain be brought in by um, dog sled. And then picked up by a Mountie. <laughs> I I would have I would have bet a substantial amount of money that nobody could dress Shania Twain up where she couldn't look great, but they accomplished it. I have no idea why she wasn't in a pair of blue jeans. And I guess the other thing is, if you if if there was uh, a chance it was going to be played in warm weather, her outfit would have been far more appealing. I'm just amazed that, frankly, considering you had the dog sled, the snow, the Mounties, the Grey Cup, I'm just frankly amazed that her guitarists weren't like doused with maple syrup or something. Just to, just to, they're not going to douse her in maple syrup, so put it on the background. Uh, it was it was pretty cool. She was it very was. Canadiana. Uh, the snow was falling. It was almost like a Hallmark card. Sure, it was. And I look at this and I think to myself, it, it is. Uh, First of all, when you say both teams, it's equal for both teams. Unlike the NFL, the one the one thing you can say for the NFL is that because of the geography of the United States, you have teams like the Miami Dolphins or the Arizona Cardinals who play in hot, hot, hot weather, and you have teams like the Buffalo Bills who are more used to, or the Green Bay Packers. So there could be seen as an advantage for those teams if it was played in crappy weather. In Canada, every team should be used to some kind of conditions. It's no, there's no huge advantage to one or the other to having snow falling or not falling. Well, up until a couple of years ago, it would have been a disadvantage to the Argos because they played indoors all the time. But you also play games on the road in yeah, other places. Point. So it's not like you should be never have had that kind of experience. But the other thing is, and I talked about this, Jamie West was hosting for Bill Kelly this week, is hosting for Bill Kelly this week, and I was on with Jamie this morning. We were chatting about this. And my thing is, Part of sports, a big part of sports at any level is the ability to deal, to, to adjust on the fly and deal with things that are not expected. And if you're a hockey team and your best player goes down, you can't say, okay, guys, wait, we're going to put this game off until my guy gets back. Connor McDavid just last year broke his collarbone two years ago, whatever. We're going to put a hold on our schedule till he's ready to play. You, The Oilers almost did. Well... But there's things that you you have to adjust if you're an athlete. You have to be able to take whatever is thrown in front of you. And I love when there's something as obvious and as impactful as a blizzard or almost a blizzard now. And you say, all right, now let's see what you do. Now let's see how you can play. So you handle adversity. Not just by being down by 21. See how you do with this. I found it interesting that the, uh, the one Argo, whose name escapes me, doesn't really escape me. I didn't, didn't know him before the interview. I can't remember it now. But the uh, when he said, "What are you from Toronto?" Yeah, don't know any of the Argos. The the um, gave all the credit to their assistant equipment manager, <laughs> who had determined that it would be better to flip shoe wear. Yeah, and gave him tremendous credit. And I always like it when 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 the stars will acknowledge that a guy that generally plays a small part other than handing them a towel and cleaning up their equipment for them actually acknowledges that may have been a significant contribution. Sure. But it, but look, it's a team is a team. But 
if you are an equipment manager, of course, you're not going to be seen as a star. You're not going to be signing autographs, but you're a part of the team. You, you've built, there's a whole, there's a reason they talk about building an organization. And it may, you may play a tiny infinitesimal part in that team all season long, but at some point you may be able to have an impact one way or another. And good for that guy for doing it. I, I get better than anybody how important those guys are because the guys that do the real McCoy stuff, you know, they do the laundry, they set up the room. I get it. I mean, they are and a that very stuff integral th- part of our success and any team's success as long as the guys have got what they need. Because after when they walk in the room, they're not thinking about the deposit that's going in next Thursday. They're thinking about the game and how do you make them more comfortable. So the you're right, it is a great big team. Well, and look, it's not, if a guy, the guys you're talking about or the guys who are the equipment managers for the Leafs or the Argos or the Ticats or whomever, you know, everybody knows how to do laundry. There's no, unless you forget to rinse the stuff and everyone's itchy all game because there's soap all over. I mean, everyone knows how to do laundry, but how the, many times... There is a reason the players have it done for them, you know. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm talking about, the equipment managers. Yeah. Everybody can do laundry. It's the, but how many times have you heard someone say, oh, this guy's the best skate sharpener in the business? Or, they, or you know, someone loses an edge, and how fast can the guy get that done and done right? There are things that you can do. But back to this for a sec, because I look at this game, I look at this stadium, and I think, why in the world? I, I, would, be, I would be fine if a new weather situation arose every year in the Grey Cup. If, if there was rain one year? Great. Like, if there was an absolute deluge, not great for the fans. Remember the Fog Bowl? The Fog were you, Bowl? Were you born then? Probably Close. not. Yeah. I don't know. The Mud Bowl? Yeah, I was 40, The Ice Bowl? I was 43. <laughs> yeah, no, the, there's been a whole lot of, especially where the stadium is now in Toronto. Like, Ottawa's quite Back a ways. on the lake? Quite a ways north, right? You expect yep. snow in Edmonton, um, uh, Ottawa, the Saskatchewan. Probably not Vancouver, probably not Toronto, probably not Hamilton unless we got something off the lake. But I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I think it adds a different element to it. And it's probably the first and only time I'll see Shania Twain on a dog sled. I would say that's probably fair. I They didn't know it was going to snow ahead of time. Did they? Do they just in Ottawa they have, have a, radios down there? I mean, No, no but the, it, there was supposed to maybe be a little bit, a tiny dusting. But not far enough ahead of time that they were, like, do they just have dog sleds on standby? <laughs> Teams of dogs ready to go? It was a Uber. It's Ottawa. <laughs> That's what you get when you go to Ottawa? Started snowing. They send a dog sled. They don't send a car. I would, I, I, I'm all for that. I would, I would look for that every single time. And I can tell you, when we look back at that game, that is, that is going to be one of those games now that stands out. And partially because of the way it was played. But more likely because because of the dog sled and Shania Twain, but also because of the snow, that is what's going to make that game memorable. We would never, Don, remember the 96 Grey Cup in Hamilton if it hadn't snowed. Do you know who that that juggernaut, the Toronto Argonauts, you know, the dynasty that ended up in last place last year? Yeah. Do you know who's going to be quietly questioned about all that? The Ticats. If they can go from last to winning a Grey Cup... How long are we going to miss the playoffs, and how long are we going to struggle? Because apparently it's not that tough if you have the right personnel in place. Good point. And it, I'm it, not going to bring it up. Well, somebody might. It is. Uh, it is something that I have no doubt is going to chafe the loins of Ticat fans to know that now, since the last time Hamilton won a Grey Cup, Toronto has won three of them. And since the last time Hamilton has hosted a Grey Cup, Toronto has hosted three of them. And everyone here who is a Ticat fan likes to yell, Argo suck. Well, I, I'm not, I know it's all fun and I know what the point of it is. I don't know that it's exactly applicable. The Argos are eating the Ticats lunch right now. And they are now in, in a position again. And you know what else? I wasn't even going to bring this up today, but at the Vanier Cup, because I was covering the Vanier Cup on Saturday with Western and Lavelle, uh, another interesting game, actually. I was shocked that we, Rick Zamperin was leaving here as we were coming in into the studio today, and I was congratulating Rick because he was on the air here last week, and he called both games correctly. Did he, a great job. He, he did a great he, job. He did a Vanier great Cup. job calling the game, but he, I don't just meant call the games. He, he picked the Western was going to win, and I picked Lavelle, because Lavelle always wins the Vanier Cup. 
and he picked that Toronto was going to win. And I said, no, they're not going to win. Calgary's the way better team. So Rick got two for two. I got over like, two. You're like Tim Hudak. I'm, I'm you're, just, you're taking the gimme putts and this, they don't work. <laughs> this is why I don't wager on sports. Um, <laughs> but at the Vanier Cup, we were sitting there, and there's a bunch of people from different places around who had come to cover it. And one of the questions that was raised by some locals but also by some people was, where are the extra seats going if Hamilton's ever going to host a Grey Cup? And I'm looking and I go, well, I have never heard the explanation of where they're going to put extra seats to try and bring it up to 30,000 or whatever because it's apparently it's a 24,000-seat stadium, give or take. But at the, at the scoreboard end, I don't think you can put seats in because there's a permanent metal structure there that is under the scoreboard, and you can't go that far back. But the other end, where the gates are, there's not much depth on the concrete patio area. There's not enough depth that you could go very far back without blocking the stairs into the stands, without blocking the gates in. I don't know how they put in. I, th- I'm sure there might be an answer. Skyhooks. I don't know how you put in seats to bring that thing up. Or maybe if part of the thing is if Hamilton's ever going to host a game, it's going to be with 25,000 people there. They said it was planned, though. They, they, they did. They did. And that's my point. I've never they also seen, said it would be done on time. So I've never seen the explanation. And looking at it from up, way up high in the seventh floor, because the press box is right at the very top and you're looking down, it looks puzzling to figure out how you would be able to put extra seats in to bring those numbers up. Because Ottawa had a big addition in the end zone. They put up lots and lots of extra seats in the end zone to bring it to a certain number. I don't know how it'll work. Well, if they get the escalators fixed and the elevators fixed at Cops, they can put it on a big screen there and put 18000 in. Maybe that's it. Maybe you charge... Uh, I think that's the plan. You charge a few bucks and, and do it there. But no, it's... Um, look, I'd love it. I'd love it to come back to Hamilton. I'd love the Grey Cup to come back here. They're going to have to bring it back. You can't justify not having, you can't have a a, a, a nine-team league yep. and get it every quarter of a century. Well, not only that, Don, but there has generally. 96, right? Uh, 96 was the last 21 time years. hosting. And there has generally been a, it's not a guaranteed thing, but generally an acceptance that if you get a new stadium, we're going to give you a great... And they do it not just with the they CFL. They did it with Ottawa. With well, Ottawa. Actually, they gave them a franchise. Winnipeg, Regina, they're all at Toronto with BMO Field. And it's not just with these. Look in the NHL. If you build a new arena, we obviously can't promise you the Stanley Cup Finals because that's in the home of the combatants. But we'll give you the All-Star Game or we'll give you the draft. We'll give you something as a big plum to make sure that you get something there in your new arena. Places like Edmonton or Detroit, all they're going to get is the draft well, for, for a couple of years. And they for, got beautiful buildings. For sure. But th- you can't do anything with that. You can't. The NHL doesn't have n- n- neutral site playoffs. So you're not, that's nothing you can guarantee to a team, but they can give them events. And Hamilton seems to me the only one that is going now. I know that there's still the lit- lawsuits and the stuff in court and everything else, and they've said we're not doing anything until this is all sorted out. But I'll be very interested once this, assuming it ever is, once this thing is sorted out, how quickly does this city and the Tiger Cats put together a serious bid to host the Grey Cup, and then how do you do it? And then how do you do it? Well. Even though the stadium seemed like a gift, it was still an expensive proposition for the city. And you got to think they're going to demand a return on their investment soon. Well, I think the city would want to have a great cup here. Absolutely. They're going to want to have a great cup. And Mayor Eisenberg is going to tell you, you know, we'll take it every other year. Now, remember, in 1996, they were given tickets away at Tim Hortons. There was a two-for-one the day before the game, as I recall. Buy a double-double and we'll give you give you well, a ticket you- of the game. Yeah, no, it was it was you buy a, you buy a coffee and a ticket and you get a free one, a second one, and and that it was. I would not expect the same problems. Well, you can't use that as a fair analogy. I mean, Ottawa just left. Well, right? they got one back. I mean, they left the league, and yeah. they got a great. So they're not holding. I mean, I'm my tongue is firmly planted in my cheek when I say that, but it wasn't good. But there's also not going to be even, and I again, I assume that there is a plan for how they would bump up 
the ticket numbers, the seat numbers at Tim Hortons Field. Looking at it from way up above, I don't know how you do it with very much, but I'm sure there's a way. I'm sure there's a plan. But even so, I don't see that you could even get up past 30,000. And so the only issue becomes for Hamilton, if they were ever not going to have a glorious return, would be if the ticket prices got so high that people said no thanks. But if you price them properly and after all the time it's been away, it seems hard to imagine that you could not have a successful Grey Cup back here. You have to buy two tickets at Tim Hortons to get a free one. <laughs> You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Don Robertson is in studio chatting sports for the first hour tonight as he does every Monday. Uh, Don, the... Speaking, I just want to stick with the Grey Cup for a couple more minutes because something really fascinating happened at the end of the Grey Cup. After the game was over, after the Argos are celebrating, reporters go into the Calgary Stampeders dressing room. And we know why the Calgary Stampeders lost, or at least what the big play was that really cost them the game. It was the, well, for the Argos, it was the opposite Leon McQuay fumble. It was a fumble near the end zone that actually played to their benefit. Uh, Calgary's Kamar Jordan fumbles the ball. Toronto picks it up and runs it back almost the length of the field for a touchdown. It was a bad fumble, especially considering the time, especially considering the, considering the location on the field. When you go to the Calgary dressing room after the game, the reporters gather around Mark A. McDaniel's um, Locker, former Hamilton Ticat, and he shreds his teammate. Takes him to the woodshed. He absolutely hung him out to dry, threw him under the bus, and took him out to the woodshed all in one. Talked how it was stupid football, how he, how can you not be covering the ball at that moment? I don't want your extra effort at that point. Get down to the ground, hold on to the ball, let us at least kick a field goal on it. He absolutely went after his own teammate. Is it ever, under certain circumstances, when you have an error that is as egregious as the one that was committed by Kamar Jordan, is it ever okay for a teammate to do that? Because normally you would say no. But in this particular case, is it okay to call the guy out? I guess you have to look at it, is it okay to tell the truth? Exactly. Because that's what happened. Everything he said was true. And is it traditional? No. Do guys like you ask questions, hoping you don't get the stock answer? You know, everybody gave 100%. He gave 100%. He was trying. It was bad luck. No, it wasn't. It was, it was unsmart football. That's not the type of thing you do in July, and it sure as hell isn't the type of thing you do in a Grey Cup that might cost you a chance to tie and or win the football game. Well, it would have put Toronto up by... That wouldn't have tied it. But the, but no, it would have put Calgary up if they had just gone down and they kicked a field goal. It would have been 11 points with four and a half, whatever it was, minutes left, which is really tough to come back from. It's then. a, it's a, it's a two-touch foot football game. you got to score twice. In the snow, against a defense that's playing well, you almost win the game if you, if you just hit the ground. So... Your point is correct. Everything he said is truthful. The question is, can you say it? Apparently you can. Do I think it's a good idea to say it? I found it refreshing, and it's the truth. And if you sugarcoat it um, in any other manner, then you know what? I bet the Calgary fans loved it. Okay, and I, you're probably not wrong there. What about in the dressing room? Who do you think? Because the players are going to take a side on this somehow. The well, players are not going to be neutral on these comments. Are they going to be rallying around McDaniel for telling it like it is, or are they going to be rallying around Jordan, who's the poor guy who's now wearing this whole loss? He won't be. He'll be easy to find. He'll be sniffling in the corner after that. Now, you're going to, and you don't know, right? Te- football teams are huge, mm-hmm. so there's clicks all over the place. And I'm guessing that they don't go out for breakfast on a regular basis. Right? Those two guys? Yeah. Right? yeah. For sure now. Well, they, but I'll bet you they weren't close, and that'll have a bearing on it. I mean, when they, when you call a guy out, generally you're not calling out your best friend. Although what was very interesting was that the interview with Jordan afterwards. So after McDaniel has just completely lambasted him, the interview with Jordan is right beside Markay McDaniel's locker while he's standing there. It's like, well, you're not going to be able to step away. It was right there. Uh, but okay, so who do you think? 
if one of these guys is going to be, if, if the Calgary Stampeders look at this, and again, you're a general manager, if this had happened on one of your teams, and you figure, you know what, we can't go into next season with both these guys in the locker room now because it would just be too splintering of a room, too awkward, whatever else. Who do you choose? The best the, player. Simple? Yep. No question. I don't think so uh, because the guys in the room, no. Now, if you keep the guy that says what he thinks, maybe the coach looks at it and goes, I'm keeping him. He's going to keep everybody in the room accountable. That's one. That's an interesting way to look at it. Right? Like, if I screw up, Nummy Nuts is going to call me out every chance he gets. Now, if it becomes disruptive and it wrecks the room, then you can't do it. But, again, it was it was like we were talking last week about a, a Phoenix trade with the Leafs and young defensemen. You, you really got to know the dynamic of the dressing room, whose contract's expired, Who's on? Who's on a two-year deal? And who's the most important guy? But if it comes down that you're not sure, keep the best player. The other side of it would be if I'm the coach, do I worry that he may go off again now? If he's been, if he feels, and I don't know how the perception is in Calgary, but if he feels that he's been supported on what he said here, and there's great rallying around Mark A. McDaniel, of course, being supported because they like that he was very honest. Does he feel emboldened that next year in the second game of the year, not the Grey Cup, but in game two, when some guy drops a ball, that it's now it's my time to come out and blast him? Do you worry that he now becomes the voice of dissension I, within the room? Then the coaches, I think, step in and say, you know, we can't let this become an epidemic. We can't be ripping each other to shreds in the media every time somebody screws up. I guess the only, the only other concerning thing if you're a coach is, and you keep him, if you keep him, uh, the coach is going, what if he unloads on me? Well, there's that. Yes, there is that part too. You, you clearly have a wild card in here, but what if he unloads on me? Were you shocked though to see this actually happen? Because I'm trying to remember the last time there are guys who probably don't like each other and you will have teammates who will occasionally say something. Or occasionally, you know, we had earlier this year, we had the Ticats have a fight in practice or a scuffle, if you want to call it that, whatever. Those things kind of happen. I can't remember the last time a player in any sport for any team basically blamed a teammate for losing a championship. I mean, imagine if in the NHL you lose in overtime and the defenseman, the microphone goes in front of a defenseman and goes, our goalie just wet the bed. That was a horrible shot. He sucks. We should have won the Stanley Cup, but goofball over there couldn't stop a beach. I mean... I. I've never heard this that I can think of. I've never heard this before from anyone. Well, it's not very traditional. Remember when Steve Smith banked it in off his own goaltender yep. and probably let uh, Calgary get by the Oilers? Maybe, Definitely. Maybe but... prevented them from winning another Stanley Cup. You didn't hear Gretzky and Messier going, what kind of a slug is he? No, and traditionally. And that's a great example because that was equally careless. That That's the best way I can describe it. That was a moment, Steve Smith was a good defenseman, that was a careless moment in a big game. Traditionally good teammates, the worst they'll get is say, listen, he, he'll he do that 300 times and never do that again. You know, it was a tough break. It could have happened to any one of us. Any one of us could have done it. And you know, the guy that's given that answer is lying through his teeth. He's going, are you kidding me? He does crap like that all the time. It was a ma- only a matter of time before it happened. You're never getting that for the most part. So to- it, it certainly was unusual f- for the guy to get called out. So got to go know. to a break, but you want to know something? The one thing that I wonder about is what happens next year when Mark A. McDaniel drops a pass that would have won a game. And you know, you just know, because Murphy's Law is alive and well, you know that at some point next year, Mark A. McDaniel is going to be wide open, streaking down the field in full stride, and Bo Levi Mitchell is going to drop a pass right into his hands, and he's going to drop it. That will happen because that's the way the world works. Do you know what he does after the game? You know, that is as bad as last year making that fumble in the Grey Cup if he's smart. If he's a smart guy, he would do that. He would throw himself at the, he would be the most self-deprecating, beyond self-deprecating, yeah. self-flagellating. You don't want to be going on there and say, hey, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that would probably not not play well at that moment. Uh, it, you watch, though. Next year, I'm predicting right now, although my football predictions have been very poor for the last couple of games, but the way these work, it will happen to him next year. There will be a moment that he will find himself in the spotlight for the wrong reasons because when you do this, when you call a guy out, you know that your turn is coming. And it'll be interesting to see how he reacts when that happens. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, we don't talk too often on this show, Don, about the Hamilton Bulldogs. And I I, want to talk broadly about something because they made a big trade on the weekend. They gave up some draft picks and a young guy that they had taken third overall a couple years ago in the OHL draft. They gave up a good chunk of stuff to get two... Older players who will not be here in all likelihood next year. One of them for sure, because he's an overager, and one of them because he'll probably be in the AHL. Sending the message, we're going for it this year. This is our year. We are going all in on this one. You've built teams before. How do you decide? What what do you look for before you pull the trigger and decide this is the time that we're going to go all in? First of all, you got to believe it. And... Steve Stale's a pretty smart hockey guy, so they obviously think they have a crack at it. But I mean, what one is of the things believe? that you got to look at is who do you have to beat? I mean, it may be your year in the cycle of junior hockey that we better be good, and this is our year. But before you start giving up a lot to take your shot, you better be real sure that that isn't going to make you just third best in the league, and now you need some luck. Like, are they going to be good enough to beat the Kitchener Rangers? Yes. Kitchener Rangers are in first place, coached by Allen Cup champion Jay McKee. But, you know, you don't say, you don't do it to win a couple rounds. You have to do it believing, especially in junior hockey, that your opportunity is in front of you. Like, uh, Guelph Storm uh, played the Edmonton Oil Kings in uh, London and the Edmonton Oil Team. Royal Kings, led by my buddy Pat LaForge. Um, they knew they had a shot. So did Guelph. Guelph went all in, and they got to the Memorial Cup final. You have to believe in your heart of hearts when you're giving up future that, that's going to come back and bite you in two or three years that you got a real legitimate shot. Now, if Steve Stales believes that, then it's a great trade. But if it's going to recycle you and you're not, and you're going to lose both those guys next year, or you have to be totally confident that what you've got in playing junior B right now or your young guys are going to carry you through. See, the London Knights, when they collapse and rebuild, they fall to fourth place. They don't go to the bottom. That's a great way to run a franchise. And uh, and that's who Hamilton the, would love to emulate. Sure. The Hunters are outstanding. Dale Hunter, they do an outstanding job down there. Like I said, when they rebuild, they don't go to the bottom like most teams do, and say, you know what, fans, you're going to have to suck it up for a couple of years. So Steos must know what he's, his plan is. He may not be done because the trading deadline is early in junior hockey, and they must be confident in what they see. I, I have enough faith in him that he's making the right call, but time will tell. Yeah, I find it fascinating that, that they've decided to make this to, to make this move now, and I see why. I see why they're doing it. They're a team. They were in fourth place overall in the league, and they were the lowest scoring team in the entire league. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm sure that they're saying... That's hard to do. It's very hard to do. If we could just get some goals, we can we can be a really, really, really good team in this league. And when you say you got to be sure that you're not going to be just the third best team, well, you don't know for sure you're not going to be. But you can we... Do I believe that we have a legitimate shot, at least? Well, I think I think the position they want to put themselves in is by saying, if we do this and we play well, we could we could win the Robertson Cup. But if they did that and say, if we do this and we get really lucky in a couple rounds, that's that's not smart. You don't want to be saying, we got to get really lucky and a couple things have to go our way. You have to feel that this is the thing that could well put you over the top. And again, I'll, I'll defer to Steos's expertise. He's a pretty good hockey man. And, uh, you know, he, I'm sure he's confident that, that he's doing the right thing. I don't, 
with my work with the McCoys don't have an opportunity to fo- For sure. follow the OHL enough, but that's where I would put it. It's just the idea of that You'd, that you it, it. I'm sure, and you've been through it. I'm sure there is some clenching of certain parts when you have to finally go and pull the trigger on that one to know that if you're giving up a lot, it better work out. In 2014, when we won the Allen Cup, the next year we had five guys come back. But you went for it. And was it worth it? We won the Allen Cup. So it was worth it. And everybody that does what we did falls to the basement and misses the playoffs. What we do, we went back to the Allen Cup the next year in Newfoundland. Absolute blind luck. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So it was back in the summer, back in August, I believe, maybe even before then, when uh, August 18 was the motion that the city of Hamilton asked the province and Metrolinx for some clarity on what would happen if the city wanted the HSR to run the LRT when it got up and running as opposed to Metrolinx. Because up until then, up until now, the idea has been Metrolinx is going to build the LRT and then is going to operate it. Well, we waited and waited and waited. And when I say we, I mean the city, but specifically my next guest and his colleagues, waited and waited and waited for some kind of response. And on Friday, Metrolinx finally got back. We're finding out about it today. In a letter from the President and Chief Executive Officer of Metrolinx to the city, and basically what they have said is, and this is the very, very short version of it, the mayor in one second is going to elaborate, you go ahead if you want to run at City of Hamilton. If you really want to be running the LRT, you go ahead, but there are some things you should know before you decide to take it on. Let me bring in. Fred Eisenberger, Mayor of the City of Hamilton, the recipient of this letter. Sir, thanks for doing this tonight. Appreciate you coming on. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. This is, um, wh- when you got this letter, and uh, and I don't know if you agree with my very, very short-form Reader's Digest version of what it says, um, how did you interpret what the letter said about what your possibilities were as a City of Hamilton? Well, I think you, uh, I think you covered it uh, pretty nicely. It, uh, I think they, they've said that it's not their preference to go down this road. This is not the direction that, they, that we started on. Uh, and it has not been the practice uh, in terms of other operations they, that they have funded in the uh, other parts of the, uh, of the Metrolink system. So design, build, maintain, operate, and manage has been the process. Uh, up until uh, you know, a, a councillor came forward and uh, you know put a suggestion on the table that to uh, for the province to consider uh, that uh, that operations and maintenance be part of the HSR uh, responsibilities. They've uh, they've said uh, clearly that they don't think that's the right path to take. But if uh, if we want to go down the road of taking on additional responsibility, then they would be prepared to have a look at operations. And uh, the letter clearly spells. You probably have a letter before you. I, I do. Yes. But, uh, the, the letter clearly spells out a whole list of responsibilities that would come with that. Uh, that uh, will have to be uh, looked after and, and guaranteed if they're, they're going to allow the city to go in that direction. Again, it's not their recommendation. Um, they uh, they are clear about not including the maintenance aspect of it. And there, I mean, I think uh, I've said right from the very very beginning that. This is something that they should never let go because it is really part of building a quality system. So making sure that, uh, that the people that are building it also have to maintain it uh, uh, builds in, you know, obviously long-term quality because they're going to have to have a 30-plus year contract to look after all of the maintenance issues around whatever they construct and build. So that's the right thing to do. Uh, you could also make the case on the operating side that there are additional responsibilities that are now going to be borne by the city that are going to have a cost to them. And their question to the city is, quite clearly, uh, if you want that cost, you, you can have it, uh, but you need to be clear on what, about what you're signing on for. Yeah, it sounds as though what it does, it, it allows the city a little more autonomy as far as operating this, but my interpretation would be from this letter, they're saying this is going to up the risk to the city also considerably financially. Right, exactly. Uh, not, not uh, you know, the operations and management agreement is the operations and management agreement. So I don't see an, a, a significant change in that other than you're taking on responsibility and risk if you're taking on the operations portion of it. And uh, you're also going to have to uh, prepare yourselves to involve yourself in that. And that uh, 
could could include a significant upfront cost for the next uh, you know six or seven years before we even get to uh, you know operating to prepare to do that. So um, there's uh, you know there's some serious things that uh, that city and council and the HSR are going to have to think about in terms of what they're prepared to take on if if any of it. And uh, for those that have said right from the very beginning that uh, they don't want this system to cost the city of Hamilton a dime, I think they've got some serious uh, thinking to do in terms of whether or not they they should take on this level of responsibility, this level of risk, and this, uh, you know, additional level of cost. Would it be a fair interpretation or guess by me that there's no way to do what they are talking about in this letter without significantly increasing the size of the HSR? Uh, you couldn't. You couldn't do this uh, with staffing as you currently have it, could you? No, no. It would. Uh, we would have to uh, so bring in some more people to prepare for this, and then and then bring in some more operators to actually pull the job off. So it's going to require additional uh, staff and resources to do this. Uh, that obviously lends itself to additional cost, and so yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, this is not going to come without a burden. And the uh, the additional burden uh, that doesn't mean it couldn't be done. Uh, it's just a question of how much additional cost, city, uh, and responsibility and risk did you do you want to take on? And uh, certainly the the first instance in the letter from the um, from MetroLink is that they don't think this is a good idea on the city's part. But if if we so choose, uh, they're prepared to play on the operating side. As all this, as this letter comes out, you are also in discussions with a couple other things that are going on, certainly with transit. There was the issue from a couple weeks ago that uh, came to the fore about the number of drivers who were missing shifts and were off for whatever reason. Then you had a counselor who came forward with a suggestion that perhaps all HSR should be free. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to have this discussion about this letter now in isolation of those things, or are those things all having to be played into the same discussion? Uh, well, you know, it becomes a factor in, uh, you know, the previous discussions. I mean, uh, you know, when you have uh, potentially, uh, you know, for whatever reason, an absentee rate of, uh, you know, 18, 19, 20 percent, there's certainly a, a problem there. We've, we've got a, uh, I would say, a temporary fix in place to, uh, to bring more drivers on to, to make sure that we provide the service on the street. And we're doing everything humanly possible to, to, to not leave people at the curb and make sure that the, uh, in time, that the uh, the lines that we're committed to and the services that we're uh, required to provide, as we've committed to it, uh, is delivered. But uh, and that what certainly will play heavily on the minds of I think some members of council to suggest that uh, we've got enough challenges right now. Do we need to take on an additional burden? Having said that, to be fair, this uh, you know this LRT uh, won't be up and running until some seven years from now. Uh, so, uh, you know, we certainly have some time to prepare, but the reality is we need to know with eyes open what the costs are, what, what additional burdens we're going to be taking on, how that's going to impact the, uh, the system as a whole, and uh, whether or not it's the kind of burden that the city ought to be taking on in terms of cost and uh, future risk. So I think there's some serious thinking that has to be done about this, and uh, I, I know that uh, a number of members of council said right from the very beginning, we will, uh, we will support LRT as long as it doesn't cost the city uh, another dime. And so uh, we've got a fully funded LRT. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, an understanding that the operations and management agreement will uh, will kick in at some point, and certainly that's a cost, I think, that, that the city is prepared to bear. And, and there also is a revenue return that comes, comes with that uh, down the road that would help offset that. So this is over and above all of that. And so uh, that's certainly an additional layer of cost that... Uh, Many of us uh, hadn't anticipated because we are uh, we're, we're moving along, moving forward on the design, build, manage, and operate process, and uh, this has certainly thrown a bit of a wrench into the into the process, and it certainly slowed the process down a little bit. Has any discuss any um, investigation or, or study been done prior to this letter coming in anticipation that they might have said this to find out what it would actually cost the city of Hamilton to take this on? Do we have any idea I, what the I, cost would be? Uh, right off the top of my head, I don't. Uh, I think it's uh, fair to say to suggest that uh, our staff will bring that to us uh, on Friday when we meet. Uh, some additional, you know, preliminary costs on what uh, what it would take, and I, I think, I mean, those preliminary costs have something to do with having the appropriate staff now 
to start planning and preparing for taking on the operations if that's the direction that we're going to go. And that has uh, costs uh, associated with it, and that's that's a cost that's going to have to be borne until now, now until the beginning of the operations. I think some people, you know, that uh, that threw this out there just assumed that operations meant drivers, and that's all that we would be responsible for. And clearly, that's not what operations means. Uh, they clearly spell out how they define it, and uh, and uh, they also spell out what uh, responsibilities we're going to be taking on. So. Uh, those that believe that, uh, you know, the drivers, uh, you know, uh, we have the HSR drivers and driving the vehicle, I would say, is not, not particularly complicated. They do a fantastic job, but it's much more than that. You're taking on the responsibility of making sure the vehicle's there and how it's, uh, how it's presented and uh, delivered. And uh, you know, there's a whole range of things that come into, uh, you know, the operations beyond just a driver. So, uh, and some would have argued that, uh, you know, that, that that we want to have a, the, the system public and uh, the reality is that the system will be public one way or the other and uh, there's no question that whoever the drivers are will be unionized one way or the other so i can't imagine that the transit union would allow uh, non-union unionized members to be driving those vehicles for for very long or if at all so they'd be unionized uh, quicker than, uh, than than we we can blink i'm sure so all of those all of those issues will factor into this, and um, we'll see what the council has an appetite for. Just to follow up on your point about just the drivers alone, if that was the initial thought, from this letter, as I understand it, essentially once, if the city was to take this on, once they hand over the LRT system to you, if you decide you want to operate it, they'll look after maintenance, as I understand still, uh, right. but basically everything from administration to driving to collecting fees to... Uh, security to everything else would be on you guys. Yeah, I mean that's what uh, that's what you know day to day operations is all about. Uh, they're they're going to look after the long term maintenance of the the system, the track, the vehicles. Uh, that they're they're taking that as their responsibility, and that's what, what maintenance is all about. Operations is how do you how do you run the thing day to day and uh, everything that comes with it. So uh, you know, as I think the letter mentions, uh, you know, a lost and found system. Uh, you know, everything that has to do with uh, running that vehicle from one end to the other and all the things that come with that, uh, and, and interactions with passengers, uh, communications, uh, you know, all of those issues will become issues that the city will have to uh, take on as a responsibility. Uh, that's what operating a system is all about. So uh, it's uh, a lot more onerous than I think people originally, uh, you know, thought when they said let, let, our, let our great ATU members, our drivers, uh, you know, continue to operate this. It's not that simple. It's much more complicated than that, and we'll have an additional cost. Last thing before I let you go. Uh, they have said in this letter that January 24th is the deadline that you would have to bring, that the City of Hamilton Council would have to have a motion to decide whether or not to do this. Um, forgive my pessimism, uh, is January 24th really enough time? Because it seems lately anyway, when we've got into some of these difficult discussions, they don't move along too quickly. Can you actually have a decision by that point? Uh, there's no reason why we can't. Uh, you know, I think that uh, our staff certainly have had time to prepare for all kinds of different scenarios. So, uh, you know, we've been waiting, you know, almost four months for this answer. So there's been no shortage of work being done, and the work continues. Uh, you know, we're uh, move, moving forward on the design and uh, finalizing the uh, the underground service work and finalizing the expropriations that need to happen. So uh, money continues to be spent. Uh, we're moving forward on getting the project done. All we need to get to is the uh, RFP process. And uh, I would say that uh, January 25th is not an unreasonable timeline for uh, for our staff. I'm, I'm sure they've had every scenario possible already mapped out. So uh, they need to now reflect on uh, what the province has brought to the table. And uh, I think they, they they have a pretty good idea of what the impacts are going to be. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, is council prepared to wrap its head around that and make a decision? I, I hope the, that we make a decision and get on with it. Uh, there's, there's been no shortage of discussion and debate on all of the various parameters around all of the operations and management and uh, you know, RFPs and RFQs. So, uh, you know, it's time to, uh, you know, finalize these issues and, uh, and move forward. So I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that we can get it done by January the 24th and uh, move on from there. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this at late notice.
Thanks, Scott. Have a great evening. That is uh, that is the short form, and I mean the the letter is three pages long. It is quite dense. I'm not gonna. I mean, it's not that you couldn't understand it. You you can people can understand it. It's not, but it, there's a lot in here, and to the mayor's point about the things that are involved in operations, because his interpretation, and I don't think it's a wrong interpretation, is that. For some people, the impression was that if we operate the HSR, or sorry, if the HSR operates the LRT, it would be drivers. That's kind of the idea. Let's have our HSR drivers doing it. But let me just quickly, and I don't even know if it's possible to do it quickly, because there's a few things I want to read you from this letter. The first one, when they're talking, I want to read you the exact line that they say, first of all, when asked for their conclusion about whether or not HSR could do this. Based on these considerations, there's a number of things they've said, I strongly recommend the project continue to be delivered using the DBFOM model. However, if the city decides it is not willing to proceed with this model, Metrolinx is prepared to remove operations from the, cure, from the current procurement and work with the city on the basis that HSR will take on both the commercial and operational obligations under contract with Metrolinx remaining as the project owner. So Metrolinx, my words now, Metrolinx still owns the thing, still builds the thing. HSR would simply be the operator and be in charge of the finances of it as well, as far as operating it. So it goes on. To be specific, Project Co., the name of the company over in Metrolinx, will retain the responsibilities for daily and life cycle maintenance, as well as for capital rehabilitation of the assets. This is what they've done in Toronto and Ottawa. But here is what they say the city of Hamilton and the HSR would be on the hook for. It's not just drivers. Safe operation driving slash driving of light rail vehicles in revenue service. So there's your drivers. That part, okay. Regulation and supervision of LRV or LRT operations through the operations control center. So you have to have a control center. Recruitment, selection, training, certification, and ongoing supervision and scheduling of drivers, staff, and other operations staff. So now you must have an administration department for this. Presumably the HSR people who are in place right now could do it, but you might need more of them, I would guess. Regulation and supervision of all LRV, LRT movements on the main line and to and from the operations, maintenance, and storage facility. So you need to have some sort of system that regulates and keeps track of where these things are. You know, if you have a train, for example, you know where the train is, so there's not an accident. There's got to be somebody now, so you have to have people monitoring where these things are. That now goes to the responsibility of the city. Control of critical safety systems and authorizing access to LRT rights of way during uh, operating hours. So the LRT will be having, as I understand it, right of way through the city, but there will have to be lights or signals or something that would prevent cars or trucks or whomever else from getting in the way so there's not accidents. That falls to the city. Fair enforcement, F-A-R-E, not... You know what I'm saying? So basically you have to look after collecting the money, providing customer information and assistance, including lost and found, addressing customer queries and complaints management. You now must have a customer service department. Could the HSR handle that? Maybe. I don't know if they have a customer service department significant enough at this point to be able to handle LRT as well. Respond to security incidents and emergencies, monitor passenger assistance intercoms, and on-demand real-time CCTV, closed caption or closed circuit TV, pardon me, coordinate responses with police, fire, and emergency medical services. So you must have then some a security department. So if someone has an issue, if there's a, someone pulls out a gun, heaven forbid, or if someone has a heart attack or there's an accident, you have to have a security system and people who are on closed circuit television who are engaged. You must provide full support and assistance to Metrolinx and Project Code during design development and delivery phases as required, and all commercial claims related to HSR's responsibilities as the provider of operations under the contract. If I read that right, that would mean you would also be responsible for legal. I stand to be corrected on that one, but that's how I would read that, that if you were to be sued for things that happen, that that becomes a responsibility of the city. 
That's a lot of stuff. It may be a good thing. There may be people who are still saying the trade-off to actually have the HSR and the city of Hamilton operating this as opposed to the province or Metrolinx is a really good thing. I'm, I've just seen the letter. You've just heard it. I've just seen the letter a couple hours ago. I just heard from the mayor. Uh, there may be good things in here when you get a chance to more deeply think about it and ruminate on it, but that's an awful lot of stuff that you would, on a, in addition to just providing drivers that you would be responsible for if you were the city of Hamilton. And will that fly with council, especially as the mayor said with a city council that has said, or with a number of councillors anyway, say we don't want this to cost the city anything? We're going to find out. First meeting with this on the agenda is Friday. That's when we're going to get a sense right off the bat whether with all this now laid out, what happens? There's a number of options. One, the city says, absolutely, everyone's on board. Let's do this. This is great. They've decided to let us have it. Let's go. That's one option. Number two, that the city looks at it and says, are you out of your mind? We're not taking on all this added stuff. Council could do that. Or the third option, the one I kind of fear a little bit because there is a January 24th deadline and despite the mayor's optimism, and I applaud him for his optimism, we do know that in recent years, any big decision has not happened quickly. My little, my fear here is that some people on council decide this is the opening position in a negotiation. We're going to go back and we are going to tell them, no, 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 we'll do this and this and this, but you have to take on this and this and this, and then this thing starts to drag. I don't, I don't know if this is a negotiating position. It doesn't suggest that, but they never would. I don't know what might be able to be doable in there, but if it starts to get into a full-on negotiation, I don't know that this thing can be done by January 24. And then what happens if it doesn't? I have no doubt that you will hear much more about this tomorrow, probably on the Bill Kelly show, probably on the Scott Thompson show. Stick around for that because uh, I'm sure you will hear many, many, many points of view and many different opinions on what this letter means. And then again, Friday, it will be brought up for the first time at City Council. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHA.